Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I tell you, I have missed you guys. And um, I don't know when, well, I do know when. It was when I was in intensive care a few years ago. The last time I missed two Sundays, I think. Uh, well, no, maybe when I went to Israel. But I don't like it. But uh, I'm, I'm back and, and missed you guys so much. And um, I wanted to just share a little bit with you as we... Uh, as we set our heart for the, toward the days ahead. Um, um, first of all, first of all, I wanted to say um, thank you to Pastor Corey for preaching those two weeks. Um, as you know, one, uh, <coughs> one week I was at uh, General Council, the other week I was ministering to uh, Mickey Mouse. Um, <laughs> with my grandchildren, and then I was supposed to come back and preach today, which I'm doing, but then I was supposed to miss the next two weeks because of surgery. And um, so I'm not having surgery, and I thought, well, that's great. Well, thank you, thank you for that, but then I thought, well, I'll just come back and I'll get two extra sermons in this month. And you'd have thought I was taking a Hershey's candy bar away from these guys to tell them they're not going to be able to preach so I tell you what, um, Corey's going to preach next week, and then Darren's going to do his small group uh, Sunday the next week, and I will be right here with you cheering them on. We're going to have a good Sunday together, um, but I tell you, I just didn't have the heart to devastate those guys like that. <laughs> then I'll get it back, and then we'll think the world's back on track with my preaching, and then the next Sunday, R.T. Kendall will be here. But um, I, I wanted to help R.T. get a start in ministry, so I'm going to let him preach on... Um, September 8th, that's going to be a great day, and then Lord willing, uh, the following Sunday, then we get back into our routine. September 15th, I begin a series on King David, and um, it's something the Lord has really, really put in my heart. I want to remind you of all of that. I want to remind you to keep praying for the one. We want uh, every Sunday for there to be at least one one. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I preached a message a few weeks ago where we want to do more than just have a service. We want every Sunday to be a turning point for someone, whether it's healing or deliverance or salvation or whatever. So keep praying for the one. Remember what I talked to you about a few weeks ago, small groups make a big difference. Pastor Darren's going to be talking to you about that in a couple of weeks as we get into our new semester. SCSL will be back with us in just a few weeks. We're praying for them, as you know. Um, I want to say thanks to Joy and Mandy uh, and all the workers that were a part of the uh, uh, women's conference this past weekend. Uh, over 200 women were here. I heard it was phenomenal, and we say praise God for that. And I know that Pastor Corey filled you in last week about fine arts um, and their success, but I just, I just want to brag on the way they represented the church, the way they represented you, and uh, thank you for producing children that, uh, that, that live the way they live and do a good job with everything they set their hands to. You know, um, Jesus said they'll be known by their fruits, and that means different things on a lot of levels. All of it's good. But um, I, I'm, I'm thinking we have so much to be thankful for when we look at the quality of our families, what, what you are living, because it takes more than just church. It, it takes a family. We were talking about that uh, a Wednesday night or two ago when I was talking about Abraham. Um, the, the church cannot resurrect what the family kills. So it's got to be the effort of the church to just be a seasoning on what's happening at home with the family. Um, I, these funerals that we've talked about, the Shull family, I was with them last night at visitation, and I told Ramona, I said, this is, this is amazing, the, the, the kind of fruit this family, the Shulls produce, and their children, their grandchildren, well, just for generations. Um, the same thing as with the Smiths, um, the same thing with the Reynolds. I tell you, we've got so much to be thankful for, and I just want to say thank you for living out what God is putting in your hearts, and we're mindful of that. I, um, 
I, I, I read something this past week that I thought I need to read this to the church. It will only take about a minute and a half, but it was great. It was from um, uh, W.A. Criswell, who was pastor at First Baptist Church for oh, 30 or 40 years. And uh, he's talking about his predecessor there at First Baptist, Dr. George W. Truett. And this is what he said. Uh, Criswell said this about Truett. George W. Truett, my predecessor, was one of the greatest men I've ever seen. During my youth, he was to me and others a hero and a great messenger of God. I loved to hear him as he would come to the university, to the convention, or a pastor's conference, always speaking with great effect and moving spirit. Dr. Truett was a personal friend of John D. Rockefeller Sr., who had a profound love and admiration for the pastor. Mr. Rockefeller was superintendent of Sunday school at Euclid Avenue Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. One day when the church was without a pastor, Mr. Rockefeller and the members of the church decided that they would try to persuade Rockefeller's friend, George W. Truett, to come and be pastor of the Cleveland church. They sent a committee to Dallas to visit with Dr. Truett and to persuade him to come to Cleveland, but Truett refused. They talked to him repeatedly, but he still refused to consider becoming pastor in Cleveland. Finally, a committee was sent to Dallas to offer Dr. Truett any salary or any provision or condition that he wanted, but he replied and said, I cannot come. The committee finally said in desperation, Dr. Truett, can you be moved? What do we need to do to move you? Can you be moved? He said, oh yes, I can be moved. The committee immediately, sensing an opportunity, said, so you can be moved. What would it take to move you? The great pastor replied, move all my people to Cleveland and I will move with them. And uh, I read that and I started blubbering and I thought that's exactly the way I feel about you guys. I, I, I miss it when I'm not here with you. And um, I just wanted to tell you after being gone for a couple of weeks, I feel this more than I've ever felt. And I just wanted to tell you that I love you and um, miss being here with you the past couple of weeks. Now, I think the doors are locked. I, I think I got it all out of my system. But I want to tell you, I preached an hour and 15 minutes first service. I should not do that now. The, the, the steam has been lessened. But um, then I hear very few laughs. The laughs I did hear were, uh, <laughs> but we're going to try, okay? Um, I want to talk to you today, seriously, I, I, we'll, we'll do better this time. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you about understanding the Lord's guidance. This, this became just, I felt like I wanted to preach a sermon on guidance for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's the kind of thing that churches need to hear every year or two anyway. It's just such a basic core value of life. But I've also noticed that I've had a lot of questions, um, especially from some of our uh, college and career age kids that graduated. How do I know this is the right job? Do I leave town? Do I stay here? You know, I, I have opportunity in a place, but I don't want to leave the church. I, help me understand how I can know the, the guidance of the Lord. And I want to tell you that I, I realize that guidance is, uh, it's, it, it's, it's an art more than it is a science. You've got to learn to hear. You've got to learn to sense the things of God. But there are also some principles that are uh, along the lines of a formula. And I want to talk for just a few minutes about that today. But I want to tell you this. What I have found is that the mechanics of guidance are not difficult. The, the principle of hearing is not difficult. I tell prophetic people, to a person that's prophetic, hearing is not the problem. Hearing comes sometimes when you don't want it to come. The difficult part is what do I do with it? How do I interpret it? What does it mean? Do I share it? Do I don't share it? How do I pray about it? Um, so just as prophecy is not a science with a formula, Neither is guidance, but guidance does have some principles that we want to talk about. But I want to go a little bit deeper than that. And I want you to understand that God has designed guidance so that it's not put in the coin, pull the handle, and I get a jackpot. He has designed guidance so that He does give you both information information 
but he also wants to bring you into intimacy. it's, It's never to God just about giving information. That's not a problem. (laughs) He could send an angel to do that. But God wants to guide you, and at the same time He gives you information, He wants to give you inspiration. He wants to give you intimacy with Him. And that's what I want to talk about mostly today. So I'm going to to move at a pretty rapid pace, and um, I I hope that this will be able to, to help you not only understand how to know the will of God, but also how to grow in the will of God. How to grow in the will of God. The text is Isaiah 58, 11. It's a powerful verse. It says, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Now, let me begin with a story when I was a young youth pastor, oh, back before Ramon and I were, even before we were dating. So, oh, and by the way, um, last Sunday, today, last Saturday, um, Ramon and I celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. Can you believe that? And uh, after, after 40 years and a week, I think... I probably got, for the most part, got her the help that she needed and straightened out okay. Um, but anyway, it's been, a good, it's been a good 40 years. And we celebrated that. But this was way back before Ramona and I uh, got married. And um, um, I was a youth pastor, and I had just performed a uh, ceremony uh, not a ceremony, I'm sorry, I was thinking wedding, of a, a, a funeral for a man that had lost his wife of 28 years. Looking at them, they just, they were so in love. They uh, had so many things to be thankful for. <coughs> they never, they, over that 28 years, they didn't have children. Um, that was one of the great heartaches of their life, but they were just a wonderful couple. Um, great to serve. And um, I I could tell that he was really struggling, but it, there was something about the grief that I didn't quite understand. I was young, he was older and wiser than me, and I was just a, a kid that was just doing my, I think my third funeral. And um, I was afraid I had really botched it. And I spoke to him and I said, uh, I said, you know she's in heaven, don't you? He said, oh, definitely. He said, I know that as surely as I know I'm standing here in the driveway of the church. I said, and you know that God is going to sustain you. I said, I know you've been together a long time, but you know God is going to sustain you. He said, yes, uh, I know that. I know he's going to sustain me. I said, "Um, and I've never lost anyone that I was as close to as a wife, I said, I may be asking a stupid question, but I just feel like there's something else that needs to be said. I thought by me, but it was by him. I said, help me. How can I help you? And he said, "Uh, pastor, he only called me pastor when he was real serious about something. The rest of the time it was Steve because he was almost old enough to be my dad. And he said, um, well, I guess he was old enough to be my dad. And he said, you, you've got to understand, he said, I loved her more than I loved life itself. And he said something that was just so powerful. Uh, and I know it's from an old rock and roll song from the 60s, but, uh, uh, you know, me and Bobby McGee, I know that. But he, he meant it with his heart. He said, I would give all of my tomorrows for a single yesterday with her. He said, that's how much I loved her. I said, I know, I know you did. He said, we did the right things. She was totally faithful to me. I was totally faithful to her. I never had eyes for any other woman. He said, there was no unfaithfulness in either of our lives. 
We were in church every week. We did everything we were taught to do as good Christians. We did our devotions together. He said, I can count on one hand in 28 years the number of days that we didn't pray and read Scripture together. Even when I was out of town, we would do it long distance. And uh, we, we've always done the right things. And I said, I, I thought he was about to confess to some sin. I said, what, what, what is it? What is it in your heart you're trying to tell me? He began to just blubber and he said, in 28 years of marriage, I was never able to convince her of how much I loved her. He said, there was a time I thought she didn't believe that I loved her. He said, now I believe that she knew I loved her, but she never got her arms around it. Every time I tried to express my love to her, she deferred it, kind of pushed it away. And she would say things like, I don't deserve such love. He said, I don't know why she said that. She's been a saint all of her life. And I'm not trying to be crude or vulgar when I say this, but he said, even when we made love and we were in bed together, she had a robe right there by her because, and I asked her about it, and she said, I'm always afraid you'll see me and not like what you see. He said, I never understood that. I told her that there was nothing that she could, uh, had any grounds to worry about physically, spiritually, emotionally. You were the love of my life. And she said, he said that she never could really wrap her head around that and wrap her arms around that. She never showed confidence in my love. She never showed an abandonment to my care or my love. When I would express my love, she'd always say, I don't deserve it. When I tried to do something for her, you shouldn't have done that. Why? Because I'm not worthy. And she just, he said, I thought this was just something that we would grow out of in our relationship. But he said, Pastor, for 28 years, he said, I know she is in heaven. We had 28 good years. And this is what he said that rattled me. He said, but they could have been so much better. They could have been so much better had she just been willing to embrace my love and understand that it was unconditional. And I didn't know how to answer him. I didn't know what to say. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, loved ones. The weaknesses that I'm talking about don't disqualify you for heaven but they do discolor life. And I want to explain what I'm, what I'm trying to get to. There are a lot of people that love the Lord with all of their heart, but because of some baggage that they carry, because of some poor theological teaching, because of something in their personality that has never gotten refined and adjusted the way it needed to, or sometimes maybe just because of demonic oppression, they don't know how to open up and accept unconditional love. And I'm not talking about your husband right now, or your wife, or your parents, or your child even. I'm talking about the way we relate to God. There is a dysfunction in the body of Christ that... Um, is so pronounced that a person goes through life from one question mark to another. You know people that have gone through life from one exclamation point to another. Most of us go from one period to another. But there are some people that everything in their life is marked by question mark. Does he really love me? If, if he loved me. And then you know what's so bad about it? Is that God does something and we don't know how to celebrate it. And when something bad happens, we fall into a funk that says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that God's not really pleased with me. He was just setting me up for trouble. He was setting me up for a fall. And we need to understand that the Lord has made a promise about guidance. In Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you always but it doesn't stop with him guiding us. That's where we tend to think it stops. God will tell us, marry this person, don't marry this person. 
take this job, don't take that job. But when God guides us, He's not just trying to give us information, like I said, He wants to foster intimacy in our hearts. So He said this, I will guide you always. I will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. I don't know if you've ever read that before. God said, when I guide you, I will not just tell you what to do. I will strengthen your life and I will make your, the very essence of your being stronger. I will strengthen your frame. He said, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Now, what I want to do in, in the next, by faith, few minutes is I want to talk about the mechanics of guidance, but only referring to it. We, we cover this regularly about, like I said, at least every year or year and a half, I go through the principles of guidance because every generation needs to hear it. But I want to talk more about what guidance does, what it opens up in our lives. Now, let's talk about the mechanics for just a moment. What are the safeguards of guidance? We don't even have time today to talk about how God guides. He speaks to us. He guides us through His Word. He guides us through circumstances, through divine appointments with people. But God has three safeguards that as we pray for guidance, for, for specific guidance, God has these three safeguards, and He says, understand, stay within the boundaries of these safeguards. Um, we talked about before how in um, the coast of Italy, I think it was, there is, there is a harbor that is profoundly safe. Uh, when a storm comes, as many ships as can, uh, at least in the old days, would, would make for that harbor. Because to get to the harbor, it's not just a harbor on the coast, it's a harbor that you get into. There's a peninsula that's down here, and you get into the harbor, and then you go behind that, and you have the safety of a fairly good-sized body of land protecting you from the storm that's coming. But the thing about this harbor is that it is so narrow. Uh, I'm talking about the, the water where the depth is sufficient for a big boat to come in, that you have to be precise. There's not much wobble room, but you have to be precise in order to get to your berth the, the, and, and safely dock your ship. And the, the way they help people do it is instead of having one uh, lighthouse, like in the old days many harbors would have, this was before the days of GPS and what have you, <coughs> instead of having one lighthouse, they have three. And you say, well, man, that would be confusing to have three lighthouses. No, because the purpose of those three lighthouses, when you're coming in the right way, when you're on track, when you're in the right place in the channel, you don't see three lighthouses, you see one. They line up. And the principle is you have to be precise, and you'll know you're precise when you're in the place where those three lighthouses line up, and you, and you only see one. And he says, uh, uh, it was... Um, Good grief, his name just left me. It's not because I'm getting old. Bob Mumford, see, if it's old, I wouldn't have forgot. Now, what was I saying? No, I'm kidding. Um, Bob Mumford said, that's the way the guidance of God is. God gives us three safeguards, and anytime those three safeguards aren't saying the same thing, we're in trouble. He says, drop anchor and stop until you can get it figured out. Um, and loved ones, this, this is the mechanics of guidance. Lord, should I marry this person? Lord, should I attend this school? Lord, should I join the Marines? Lord, should I do this, that, or the other? God says, okay, do the lighthouses line up? Number one, the first one is the Word of God. Um, now, I know the Bible doesn't have a command about everything. There's, you're not going to find a verse that says, marry Susie. But you can find verses that talk about marriage, when marriage, when you're ready for marriage, the kind of woman that you ought to marry, what's, who's a virtuous woman and that kind of thing. And you take the counsel of Scripture and you say, okay, yes, this, this lines up. You know, Susie is the kind of woman that I want to marry. She's a Proverb 31 woman. I'm old enough, you know, that my reasons are valid. 
she's a believer, I'm a believer. And you go through the list of the word and you say, yes, that, line, that lighthouse is lining up. So you go to the next one. The second lighthouse is the Spirit of God. What is the Spirit saying to you about this? Do you have peace in your heart when you think about Susie? Um, do, you, do you have a sense of this is the providence of God? This is the wisdom of God. I can spend the rest of my life with Susie. I know when Ramona and I were dating, I, I, I felt like I loved her. But the thing that sealed it for me is when I began to consider what I thought the Spirit was saying, I remember somebody asked me something. Uh, to dis- they, they said, what is the Spirit saying? And I tried to answer it. And this person said, let me ask you this. How would you feel if Ramona said she wanted to be out of your life? And I said, I would be devastated. And they said, you remember when you were in Bible college, I asked you that about somebody else you were dating. And how would you feel if she said she wanted to be out of your life? And you remember what you said? (laughs) I said, I sure do. I said, I would be relieved. (laughs) I would be relieved because I I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want to get hurt. But it was very clear that the Spirit was not bearing witness, and it was a relief to get out of that relationship. But when Ramona came along, it was a, I I feel like my life would be over. I I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And we talked about other things. And so Susie meets the scriptural parameters. Susie meets what you feel is the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. But there's a third lighthouse that a lot of us have been taught to ignore. We've been taught, you know, we, we've been taught that circumstances are of the devil. We've been taught that people of faith just go ahead and do it no matter what the circumstances. And I, I think what people who teach that are trying to say is even if the devil opposes you in something, do it anyway. But we also need to understand that there is a very real situation that we may get into where we understand that God is lining up circumstances. For instance, is Susie married to someone else? You say, well, all I know is what the Bible says and what the Spirit's telling me. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I've had people do that. Not at this church, but I've had people do that. They say, I don't care what the Bible says. All I know is what the Spirit told me. And we as Pentecostals and Charismatics who believe in the renewing and personal voice of the Holy Spirit, we need to do that, but we also need to understand that the Spirit never works in opposition to the Word. Now, he may work in opposition to our faulty understanding of the word. I understand that, but we don't have time to cover all of those possibilities. But when we're in the will of God, I consider the scripture, I consider the witness of the spirit, and then God lines up the circumstances and he makes it easy for us to go down that path. Now, that's the mechanics of guidance. And you say, well, that's not as easy as it sounds. It's, 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 as I said, it's not a science, it's an art, because the more you do it, the closer you walk with God, the more you're in the Word, the more you're in intimacy with Him, the easier fellowship becomes, and the easier guidance becomes. That's the safeguards of guidance. Now, we've already said there's two primary kinds of guidance. The first kind of guidance is what we generally think of. It's what I just explained. Specific guidance. Do I marry her? Do I take that job? Do I buy this car? You know, Um, And we can name hundreds of examples of specific guidance. Do we move into this neighborhood? Which college do I apply to? And all of those things are, God, I need to know what to do in a given situation. That's called specific guidance. And that's when those lighthouses have to come together. The Word, the witness of the Spirit, and circumstances. But there's also general guidance or providential guidance. This is the kind of thing where you go through the day and didn't even realize until something happens that God has been guiding you all along. You're like the men on the road to Emmaus. It was only after the encounter with Jesus that was the providential will of God. It was only after that that they looked back and said, man, how did we miss that this was God? Didn't our hearts burn with with, uh, fervor and the Spirit while he spoke to us out of the scriptures, providential guidance, general guidance, generally you go through the day and you don't even know until you stop and look back. God has been guiding my steps all day long. You didn't ask him about anything in particular, but all day long he's been guiding you. 
Now, those are the two types of guidance, basically. You can go to Luke chapter 2. Time won't permit us to do it. But you can go to Luke chapter 2 and see the examples of both in Luke 2, verses 22 to 40 is what I meant to say. Simeon and Anna have an appointment with destiny. They are both going to see Jesus, the baby, 40, uh, well, I started to say 40 years old, being carried by his mother. Let me try that again. 40 days old, being carried by his mother. They both have a divine appointment. Simeon is going to walk up, take Jesus in his arms. He received a promise by the Holy Spirit years ago. He's an old man because God said, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see Messiah. And he takes that baby in his arm. The Spirit speaks to his heart. And he says, Lord, whoo, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the promise of your salvation to Israel. Anna bears witness to the same thing. She was a woman that had a life of fasting and prayer in the temple. She bears witness. So young Joseph and young Mary holding this miraculous child, the first, their firstborn child, or Mary has given birth to Jesus, who of course is the Son of God, and they are being overwhelmed by this. This man saying he's Messiah. This woman is bearing witness. And Anna and Simeon are phenomenal witnesses to the miraculous power of Christ. But how did God guide them? He led Anna by indirect providential guidance. The Bible says every day God needs to get her right there. But it's not an issue because every day she prays and waits upon God. That was her path. She didn't feel anything special. She's doing what she does every day. But all of a sudden she comes to a point of divine encounter. God guides you that way. But we have Simeon who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the scripture says that morning, he didn't go to the temple every day, but that morning, Luke 2 says, the scripture spoke to him and sent him to the temple. So he's in there being led step by step. Uh, Anna is coming, doing what she always do and does, and they both end up at the same place, and he takes that baby in his arms and blesses him. Loved ones, children of God, are led consciously and unconsciously. We call it coincidences when it's unconscious, but it's not unconscious. I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's the providential hand of God. Now, he does that. He also leads us specifically. Um, and I, I, want to, I want to go now to the next thing and just for just a very few minutes. I want to talk about um, these three Christian life lessons that take us to the next level. I want us to keep that man in mind for whom I preached his wife's funeral 40 plus years ago. And he said, our marriage was fabulous, but it could have been better. It could have been better. And I want to ask you this question. Are you satisfied with your life of intimacy with the Lord are you satisfied with your life with the Lord in general, or do you find yourself plagued by the thoughts of it could have been better? I'm not talking about works mentality. I'm talking about have you been flexible and open? Have you welcomed the love of God in such a way that God is constantly pouring into your life? Loved ones, let me say this as just a sub-point. It's a serious thing. Now, I've already said this is not about us going to heaven. You, you, don't, you don't go to heaven because of your intimacy. Uh, you say, well, what's the value of intimacy if that's not how I get to heaven? Because intimacy gives you a little bit of heaven on earth. But you're not going to heaven because of your deeds. You don't get saved because of what you do. You don't stay saved because of what you do. But what we do, our works, determines the, um, the sweetness and the, and the quality of our life with God. Now, I want you to see three things in closing. When guidance occurs, again, now it's not supposed to, your notes are missing a line. It, under the treasure of guidance, it should say the treasure of intimacy, but before that it should say the treasure of information. Guidance gives you information, but guidance is designed to give you intimacy because, number one, when you walk 
in guidance the way it was meant to be. Guidance opens the door to understanding God. When you are led by the Lord, are you with me this morning? When you walk with the Lord, you begin to understand the ways of God and the heart of God. Guidance opens the door to understanding of God. Satan's ploy is he knows that you're going to hear from God. You know, the New Testament says, my sheep know my voice. And the New Testament says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. God is going to lead us. And God is going to get through to you. Satan can't eliminate that from our lives. So what he wants to do is he wants to, to distort it. You see in Genesis 3, he will take three approaches. He'll make you doubt God's love. He'll make you disregard God's love. He'll make you distort God's love. We see that all the way through Scripture. God's love is doubted. You remember Elijah's widow where she thought her life was falling apart. She was ready for her and her son to die. But God sends Elijah, the prophet knocks on her door and he said, and I see in the newspaper here, you've got a room for rent. And she said, well, I did, but I'm about to eat our last meal with me and my son. And he says, well, that's okay, do that, but go ahead, fix your last meal. But before you do it, fix one for me. And she did, and then that opened the door to the miraculous. But Whenever her son died, what did she do? The love of God that she'd been banking on is now doubted. She says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was too good to be true. Loved ones, we've got to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Is your uh, perception of the love of God fine and dandy until something happens that causes distress or trauma in your life? And then you revert to, I knew this was too good to be true. That's the result of the devil making you doubt God's love. Um, or, or is the love of God disregarded? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And the prophet Malachi, Malachi represented God. It's like a legal document. There are seven charges brought against the people of Israel by God. And the first charge in chapter 1 is that God's love is disregarded. In other words, they had no problem with the idea of the love of God in a theoretical concept. But God says, you have disregarded my love. And they said, when have we ever disregarded your love? And what they were really saying when you get into the text is, you've never shown us any love to disregard. But it's interesting, the Hebrew word that the prophet used was the word of demonstrated love. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't an abstract concept. God said, I have done this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I've showed you my love. And their response, even after God gives examples, is when? When? They were disregarding his love. And then God loved the enemy wants to distort. We learned this in the New Testament as well as the story of Eve and Adam where uh, when Jesus told the story, the parable about the talents, the first man doubled his, his investment, the second man doubled his investment. When we come to the third man, he said, you were a hard man. Nobody else seemed to think the master was a hard man. And be careful when you find Christians, they may be right, they may be dedicated, they may be doing everything, jumping through all the hoops, but you see this surface in their lives over and over. Whenever trouble comes, they resort to, he's a hard man. He's a hard man. He's a hard man. I remember one time seeing a lady speak to a, a young pastor. And she said, uh, are these your children? He said, yes. And she, she said to him, please understand this. Don't get too attached. Hold them loosely because the day will come when God will rip them out of your hands. That pastor's wife, her eyes got big. He, he didn't know what to say. And she was as godly a woman as, as, as attended that church. But I went to the pastor afterwards. I said, I want to tell you something. You're listening to a woman that has lost her whole family in an automobile accident. And every time she sees a family, her thoughts are, God 
took my family. And she's projecting that to you. I said her heart's in the right place. Her heart is saying, I don't want you to hurt like I hurt. But I said, you and your wife don't need to walk under the fear of I'm going to lose everything that God has given me. Loved ones, God, you can be actually aware of God's love, but allow it to be so distorted that God won't really do anything that good. Now, is anybody okay? You're with me. Okay. Um, there is no revelation as opposed by hell as the understanding of God's heart. Um, so we understand not only the ways of God, but we understand the heart of God. For instance, in Psalm 103.7, listen to what the psalmist said. God made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. This isn't just Hebrew parallelism where the same thing is said twice. There was a distinction here. He said when it comes to Moses and the people of Israel, God took care of them both. Hear me, loved ones. But the people, all they ever saw was God's actions. And their approval of God hinged upon God's actions. Lord, if you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll work this way. They were seeing his ways or his deeds, but Moses was seeing his ways. Moses was seeing more than what God does. He was seeing who God is. The New Living Translation puts it this way. He revealed his character to Moses and showed his deeds to the people of Israel. I want to ask you this question, loved ones. Are you the kind of believer that all that registers in your mind is did God do it? Did God rescue us? Did God provide? Or are you the kind of Christian that understands God's heart and you understand that God may not do what I want Him to do the way I want Him to do it. <laughs> but I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to love Him. I've, I've pastored for over 40 years and there's a constant cycle in, in the body of believers of, of good, solid people that are up and down and up and down and up and down. And when you get to the cause of them being up and down, mad with the church, mad with God, mad with the Sunday school superintendent, mad with the parking lot attendant. They're mad with somebody about everything all the time. And I'll tell you what's at the heart of it. They are serving a God who refuses to be an errand boy. And they feel betrayed. <coughs> they feel hurt. I'm not fussing. I'm just saying we all, you know, God deals with us all equally in this respect. We all have an opportunity to be offended. But to be offended is your decision. To be offended is my decision. We live in an age of rage. This is, there's almost no effort given these days to understanding. That there is most often a demand that you see things my way. That you do things my way. That everything is in place for my way to be served. And loved ones, I, I want you to know guidance opens the door to understanding of God and that's why things may not go as smoothly as you think. That's why you may have periods of waiting on God and questioning God. You've got to understand that God does guidance in order to give us an opportunity to press in and understand Him. The second life lesson is that guidance opens the door to reestablishing the Lordship of Christ. This is tough because we don't understand statements like Job who said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That is not an invitation to say, oh, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to love him anyway. Job was making a profound theological and philosophical statement when he said that. He said, I am understanding that I will not always understand the ways of God, but I've also made a determination. If he leads me to a place of death and I don't understand what he's doing, that doesn't mean he is unknowable and it doesn't mean he doesn't love me. It means it just shows the difference between me and him and I'm going to trust him regardless. That's easy to preach. I got the easy part. The hard part is to believe it. The hard part is to put it into practice, 
but it's true. So when God guides me, he says, I want you to understand me, not just what I do, but how my heart operates. He said, when you follow me in guidance, I want you to understand that I'm giving you an opportunity to reestablish the Lordship of Christ in your life. We don't have time to go over it, but in Matthew 15, there's the story of a Gentile woman that approached Jesus. And she said, Jesus, my baby girl, I want to tell you something. There's not much I wouldn't do for my baby girl. And, I, and she went to Jesus and she said, my baby girl's at the point of death, do something. And Jesus did two things that we don't understand. And quite frankly, we don't usually teach junior boys and girls about this story. But Jesus did two things that rattled that woman. First of all, he ignored her. And then he apparently insulted her. And, and I, I tell you, I think being ignored is worse than being insulted. I think being ignored is worse than being told no. Because if you're told no, at least you got an answer. Psychologists tell us that a person who uh, is divorced by their spouse usually has a more difficult time adjusting than a person whose spouse died. Now, they're both horrible. But he said the person whose spouse died they lost that spouse with the understanding that my spouse isn't here, but she loved me. He's not here, but he loved me. And something beyond us has separated us, but she'll love me forever. He'll love me forever. But when a, when a, a person is betrayed and divorce occurs, that rejection does a number. She could have stayed with me, but she didn't. He could have stayed with me, but she didn't. And, and I, I want to tell you, th- th- this idea of Rejection is powerful, but to be ignored when your life is breaking, to be ignored, boy, that's a tough thing to handle. And then when Jesus did speak, he, he seemed to be insulting her. He said, it's not fit for, to give the children's bread to dogs. And guys, I want to tell you, at that point, she had a, she had a decision. Corey, you're Jesus. Jesus is walking along, and she says, Master... My daughter is, is at the point of death. Jesus does nothing. And she said, Jesus, Jesus. And he stops and he says, it's not right for me to give the children's bread to dogs. Now he's, not only is he saying, what, what claim are you making? And, and then he says, you're a dog. Now at that point, that's where most Christians have the most difficult spot. Because at that point, when God deals with you in a way you don't understand, there was a reason behind what Jesus was doing. But you got to wait to see the whole story. At this point, she has an option. She can say, well, forget it, Mr. Sassy Pants. I was treated better at the other church. Or nobody calls me a dog. I mean, you want to know how deep your commitment to the Lordship of Christ is? Let tragedy come and then watch yourself for about 72 hours. But she made a brilliant decision. Jesus kept walking. And she made a decision. Jesus, let's talk. This is my baby girl. Now, Jesus, I know you're busy, but what what I need you to know, Jesus, is that my baby girl's down here, and and Lord, this won't take you long. And and, uh, you say, did she really say that? Well, she said it this way. That's true. I have nothing to stand on, Jesus. But even dogs get to eat crumbs that fall from the children's table. And then Jesus gets this big, beautiful smile on his face. This is in the Chitty Revised Standard. And, and he talks, then he begins to compliment her. He talks about her faith. And I hate it when preachers or theologians say, that woman changed Jesus' mind. That woman didn't change anything about Jesus' mind. Jesus changed something in her mind. Because whenever you come against these tough spots, you can walk away and carry your bitterness to your grave, thinking that changing churches will solve it, or changing husbands will solve it, or changing jobs will solve it. Uh, But you know what I find out? Loved ones, when we keep running into this thing over and over again, we need to stop and ask, is this me? Is this me? And she said, no, this is is where the answer is. I don't understand what he's doing. I'm, I'm not writing this in my journal him calling me a dog. It's not going on Facebook. 
but I know this is the answer. And Lebanon's, can I tell you that God will let desperation fill you? I'll take a break, Jesus. Thank you. God, God will let desperation fill your life. God will let unanswered questions fill your life. God will let you walk through a deep, dark place. And it's not because he is um, a chaotic God. It's not because he's an uncompassionate God. It's not because he has mood swings. None of that is true. But God will use desperation to bring us to a place where we say it's all or nothing. It, it, it's all or nothing. You know what I have found? I have found that in those seasons when God is silent, I have found in those seasons when it feels like God is ignoring me, what I have found is if I'll stay, if I'll just stay, he'll talk. Sooner or later, he'll talk. One of the speakers at General Council had a great sermon on that, and I thought, oh, this man has walked with God. If I'll stay, he'll talk. God, allow, God doesn't do things like that in order for him to figure us out. He does things like that because he wants what we are to be figured out by us. Well, he, he well, let me, I better end it because I don't want to do what I did first service. The, the final thing is that guidance opens the door to a strong frame, a satisfied soul, and a fruitful life. Loved ones, God wants to give you guidance. God wants to give you direction. God wants to take you by the hand and walk with you through that dark valley in order to stabilize you, in order to give you strength, in order for your faith to grow. And you say, oh, I just don't like that. I resent that. I resent being used like that. Loved ones, it's God Almighty bringing you to a place. And, and you started it. You say, I did not start it. Yep, there's two prayers that have eternal consequences. I mean, they're going to follow you and chase you like an ugly dog the rest of your life. One is Jesus be the Lord of my life. Woo! That's great. Save me. Okay, great. And you know the second most dangerous prayer you can pray? Oh, Father, make me more like you. <laughs> Woo! Fla alarms go off in heaven. Flags go up. And when we go through those tough places, we say, I want out. What are you doing? He says, I'm answering your prayer. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's the best prayer you can ever pray, but it's a dangerous prayer to pray. And can I say one thing as we close? We need to understand, I'm not trying to bully or I'm not trying to, to manipulate. I'm certainly not trying to intimidate because that's the way the enemy works. That's not the way the spirit works. But I'll tell you this, we need to understand how grievous it is to the Lord for us to marginalize his love, to get mad and say, if you really loved me, you'd do this, or you don't love me at all. You know what it's like to have an unthankful child that every time something goes wrong, they just lose it and you don't love me. I, I remember two times, I only remember it twice, but I remember two times in my life really trying to hurt my parents when I was a small kid. And I, I, both times it worked, and I did the same thing both times. I wanted them to bleed, not physically, but emotionally. And both times I said the same thing. You don't love me. You don't care about what happens to me. And I, it was devastating. It was devastatingly effective. And I, I profoundly repented and apologized to my parents because that was so unfair and it was so incorrect. Un, but loved ones, we tend to do that as Christians all the time. We get bad news. We get a no when we want a yes. We want a left when we want a right. And we don't understand what it does to your relationship with God. He doesn't turn from you, but it creates all kinds of baggage that then you've got to work through. It, th that's why Paul said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve is a love word. See, I grew up thinking don't grieve the spirit means don't smoke or women don't cut your hair or don't wear jewelry. I mean, we had a lot of ways you could grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm not talking about any, I'm not 
bashing on anyone's convictions. I'm just saying, to us, everything with grieving the Spirit had to do with keeping the church rules. And I believe in church rules. But you know what I found? I found out that grieve is a love word. That was a very specifically chosen word by the Holy Spirit when Paul said, do not grieve the Spirit. In fact, he says two things. He says, don't grieve and don't quench. Um, quench has to do with purpose and work, but grieve has to do with the heart. See, when, when I turn the key on my car and it doesn't work, that doesn't grieve me. That makes me mad because I, I don't love my car. When I turn on the air conditioner and it doesn't work, that doesn't grieve me. That angers me, you know, because that's an inanimate machine. I, I never go out to the air conditioner and have heart-to-heart -heart talks with it. And I don't love my air conditioner. I mean, I appreciate what it does, but I don't love my air conditioner. I don't love, you know, when people say, oh, you know, they'll talk about another object and say, oh, that, that, that's like a member of the family. No, it's not. No, it's not, or at least I hope it's not. I mean, if it is, you need some work on your family. But I tell you, when something I love disappointment, disappoints me, lets me down, that's grief. I grieve over that. When I disappoint someone that loves me, that causes my heart to grieve. And I believe what God is doing. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to, to end but what I think God is after, and I hope everybody in Brown Chapel can get their heads wrapped around this as well. What God is after is a commitment to his plan and purpose that when we say we're led of the Lord, it's more than a do this and go there. God not only wants to send us, he wants to change us. He wants to formulate something brand new in our hearts. And I believe what the Spirit of God is after is to do such a work in us that as God leads us, we don't just say thanks. As God provides for us, we just don't give Him a thumbs up. But as God does His incredible work in us, we're being changed to love Him. And when He's quiet, we stay knowing He's going to speak soon. When He doesn't seem to move, we don't pout and go back and go in a different direction. We just know something deep and profound is going on in us. Loved ones, I, I wish as a pastor, I know, what you, I know what you're suffering. I'm looking at people today that I know, I, I see representatives of all three of the families that have suffered this profound loss. I wish I could take all that hurt away. I see others of you that I know are having trouble with business or you're fighting cancer in your body. I can look in every section and I can cry over several people in every section. But I can't change that. Jesus is the only one that can help us navigate those dark valleys. And that's why we need to learn to not grieve. It's not because he, he doesn't say, ah, you don't act right, I'm not going to help you. He, he never does that. You know what the Bible says? It says even when we're unfaithful, he abides faithful still. It's not a, let's, okay, let's, you know, got to hold your face just right so Jesus won't be mad with you. Now, that's not what we're talking about. We're not trying to say, get in line, straighten up. We're trying to say, if you're not careful, you'll cut yourself off from every spiritual means of help. Because as we always say, it's on his terms. Let's pray. Uh, ministry teams, would you please come forward? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we dismiss the service today, I know there are folks that they, they recognize that there is something dysfunctional in their lives. They have a default. They have a default when trouble comes, their fist goes up. Their fist goes up and their anger comes out and their faith disappears. But Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you to do something so powerful in every one of us that instead of a default to doubt, there will be a default to run to daddy's arms. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. The Lord reminded me of a vision I had years ago, and it was a message on murmuring. I'm not going to preach it. But I remember God showed me in a vision. 
He says, this is what I have to deal with all the time. And I saw a hand go up and praise to the Lord. And something happened. And instead of the hand staying lifted in praise, it did this. We go from faith to rebellion. We go from incense to insurrection. And we've got to learn. I'm, I'm not fussing. We've all done that. But before we go to another level, we've got to learn to keep the hand open. We've got to learn to let God do his work. Father, deliver. I'm asking in Jesus' name, deliver everyone right now that is bound by this default to doubt, this default to anger. If you're here and you want prayer, if you're here and want to give your life to Jesus, these ministry teams are here. I know I've held you over. But um, I'm going to let you go. And don't worry about next week. Corey will preach. He'll do good. But um, thank you for letting me. Just this is what happens when uh, I don't preach for two weeks. I'm sorry. But I want you to go knowing that God is working something in you that is phenomenally beneficial. I love you. Thank you for being here. And the altars are open for you today.